0: Your scripture reading today comes from John 17, 1 through 11. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated, please.
1: Well, hey, before we start, uh, I have a quick little announcement. You should have gotten an email about Awesome Kids Preschool this past week. Uh, If you didn't, it probably means either all of our emails are going to your spam folder, which is hurtful, or uh, you haven't given us your email. So next time you sign in, make sure you do that. Uh, but uh, even if you read that email, I wanted to address it here just really briefly. There's amazing news to share. Uh, Anna Lynn Rolf, who some of you may remember, actually served here at the Leewood campus uh, in children's ministries for a while and currently now serves at our Brookside campus after much prayer and conversation, has agreed to come and lead Awesome Kids Preschool into the future as our next director of Awesome Kids, which is very exciting. Anna Lynn uh, is an amazing leader, and uh, we cannot wait to have her here. And yet, at the same time, that means that our wonderful Bonnie Trainer, who is our current preschool director, is retiring, and we are going to miss Bonnie so much. So if you guys are new here or you haven't been around, our Awesome Kids has been around for over 20 years, and Bonnie uh, and her amazing team, and with God's help, uh, built Awesome Kids from the ground up. Uh, And she built something truly beautiful and lasting, and it's amazing what she's done. She's excited about her next chapter, uh, and we are too. Just so we're clear, Bonnie is going to lead here until the end of next preschool year in 2024, so this is a transition year. This isn't happening tomorrow, Uh, but I do uh, want to ask you to be praying for Bonnie in particular as she prepares kiddos and parents and teachers and Anna Lynn for this really important transition and we're going to keep you updated along the way uh, but I did want to take a moment to pray and to praise God together for Awesome Kids Preschool and for Bonnie and her amazing faithfulness for so long and for Annalyn uh, as she begins the transition here. So and if you see Bonnie around uh, give her a big hug And uh, try not to cry yet, because we're going to talk about this again, so just give her a hug and, and say thanks. Let's pray together now. Father, we remember the words of your son Jesus, who told his disciples, let the children come to me, which has been at the heart of what Awesome Kids Preschool is all about for 20 years, introducing children to Jesus. And we are so grateful for how you have blessed Awesome Kids Preschool for every uh, young image bearer who has darkened those doors and how well they have been loved by Bonnie and the teachers there. We pray for Bonnie uh, and Warren as, as Bonnie prepares her heart not only to leave well and to finish well, but to consider what you have for her next. We pray for the preschool, that you continue to bless it, and use it as a light in our community. And we pray for Anna Lynn and her family, that you would continue to prepare her uh, for her next big role here in leading the preschool. Father, what a privilege and an honor it is to work with you to bless our community. We're grateful. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, We've all experienced this moment, this feeling, this sense at one time or another throughout our lives. I remember for me, it was really early, the first time I encountered this, and I, I was about five years old, and I was playing on the playground at elementary school, and I, and I looked across the field, and you know, through, I don't know where I was, I was playing handball or something, and I looked through the monkey bars and past the swing set, and I saw Tiffany for the first time, and I knew... I knew in that moment, I finally understood why poetry existed, how we could <laughs> encounter something uh, that we couldn't quite put into words, and, uh, you know, we eventually decided to see other people, and, I, and I, I met my wonderful wife, and it all worked out great, but I remember that moment. I remember, I remember that, and it happened again when I saw Half Dome Rock. This was a couple of years later in Yosemite. I... I uh, was there, and I have this memory, it was a, a bright morning, and I, the sun caught the rock in such a way, it just took my breath away. I'd never seen anything like it before. And it happened again this summer, when my family and I, we got to go to Amsterdam in the Netherlands, and uh, in particular, we visited uh, the Van Gogh Museum there in Amsterdam, which is the largest collection of, of, his, of his works in the world. And I got to see Wheatfield under Thundercloud. It's not a super well-known work of his, but it's one of my favorites. And I was there in person where you could see the color and the brush strokes that made Van Gogh famous, and I could have looked at this for an hour. I loved it so much. Beauty. That's what we're talking about. Beauty. Before we have words for it, before we... <laughs> Before we can describe it, we know it when we see it. And we're captivated by it. And ultimately, we're changed by it. We we, we don't leave the same person when we encounter something truly beautiful. Why do I say all of this? Well, in, in our text this morning, which is John 17. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. John 17. Jesus ends this conversation he's having with his disciples. If you've been with us the last few weeks and months, actually, Jesus has been in one conversation that started over a Passover meal in the upper room with his closest friends, his closest disciples and followers, that ends now in a prayer just before Jesus' betrayal and arrest by the Roman authorities. That's our next sermon in John 18. These are not Jesus' final words in the Gospel of John, but they have this seriousness, the solemnity of last words. And he's praying. You just heard some of it. He prays to his Father for glory. He says, Father, my hour has come to reveal my glory to the world. Now, this word glory is translating a Greek word, doxa, which is it's hard to get at what, what that means. It's trying to capture the splendor and the weight and the awe when we encounter something so pure and so good and so wonderful that all we can do is bow down and worship. In other words, glory is another way of saying beauty. It's perhaps more than beauty, but it's not less than it. And Jesus prays to his Father, it's time to reveal my glory. It's time to show the world my beauty. This is what this has all been building to, because Jesus knows, he knows, that the only way, his, uh, the only way we can truly change is to, is to see his beauty. His glory has to be revealed to us, if we're ever to understand truly who and what he is. And he starts here in John 17 verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Now, now John is reminding us that this uh, concept, glory, this word glory, revealing Jesus' beauty has been the purpose of his gospel from the very beginning. Actually, if you were to go back to chapter 1 of John's gospel… John warned us there. He said, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. But we've been waiting for chapter after chapter after chapter. If you remember, Jesus even tells His mother in chapter 2, At that famous wedding in Cana where he turns water into wine, there's a moment, there's an interaction where he looks at Mary and he says, my hour has not yet come. Now that hour has arrived. It's time. And it's a beauty and it's a glory that Jesus is asking his father to reveal that goes way back. Further back than John chapter 1. Further back than than Genesis 1. He hints at it here in verse 5. He says, now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Jesus hints here that before there was let there be light. There is a beauty he has yet to reveal. It has never been revealed. It is everywhere anticipated, though. You can smell it on the rose on a bright morning walk in the garden you realize there that God did not just make flowers for food. He made them beautiful just for beauty's sake. You can see it in the heavens on a clear night, in the mountains, in the stillness and silence that only nature can provide. You sense there something that is so big and so vast that simply to look at it gives you a small glimmer of the bigness of God himself. These are all things that Jesus And his father made and called them good in Genesis 1. But there was a beauty that they didn't show even then. When Moses begged God to see his face in Exodus, if you're familiar with the story, Moses on the mountain says, God, show me your face. Show me your glory. But God says, if I were to do that, it would destroy you. I can only show you part of it. It would obliterate you to see my beauty fully revealed. And if you remember, he passes by Moses, so Moses can only, he can't fully see the glory. But even then, Moses comes down off the mountain and he's glowing, he's shining. It's so intense. The same thing happens to Isaiah, prophet Isaiah. In his vision of God's throne room, he's overwhelmed by the glory and the beauty of God's presence. He doesn't think he's going to survive. And yet for all this time, There was a beauty that Jesus hid. There was something behind the curtain. There was something roped off to humanity until this very moment. Jesus says, now. Father, now is the hour. Reveal it. And here's the thing. It doesn't look like this. And it doesn't look like this. And it doesn't even look like this. This isn't Half Dome. This isn't Van Gogh. It's this. This is what Jesus is preparing preparing us for. At the very turning point of human history, at the climax of God's revelation of all beauty and glory hidden from the foundations of the world, his magnum opus, his Beethoven's Fifth, his Mona Lisa, is death by torture. It is excruciating pain. It is torn flesh, blood, humiliation, and death. This is where Jesus goes right after this prayer. He will be betrayed and condemned and flogged and crucified. And what John wants to make clear is that this hour we have been waiting for, the hour all of creation was made for, the hour Jesus came for has arrived To reveal a glory and a beauty we could not understand until Jesus. And it is the beauty of the Word made flesh, sacrificing Himself for the same humanity that killed Him in the first place. This is not beauty as humanity has ever understood it. This is something else. This is something offensive, (laughs) repulsive even. At first blush. Jesus' beauty, it shocks us. What he reveals is shocking to us. To our very core. It is the most surprising, disturbing, and subversive thing we could have possibly imagined. And in fact, we couldn't imagine it. And we didn't. The Romans certainly didn't. There's a reason Paul called the crucified Jesus Jesus. The executed God, he called that message foolishness to the Greeks. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says the message we proclaim is foolishness to the the wisdom of this world. In fact, the preaching of this crucified Savior, this, this crucified King, was utterly disgusting and stupid to those who first heard it. Just read the book of Acts. It's a it's a history of the the first missionary encounter of the message of Jesus and the Roman world. Just read that book. And you'll see that Paul is almost killed for daring to challenge the idolatry and beauty of Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Amazing, stunning, beautiful city. And Paul dared to challenge the cult there with a crucified Jesus. Almost cost him his life. If that isn't enough for you, we have letters upon letters, documents upon documents of Roman officials, philosophers, governors, complaining about these Christians who proclaim a weak and dead God, a worthless God. And if even that isn't enough, know this. The very first artistic expression that Jesus ever inspired in the Roman world, we actually know what it was. It was a a mockery. It was a graffiti on a Roman wall. Here it is. We actually have a a rubbing of it. It's called "Alexamenus Worships His God. Very first art Jesus ever inspired. It's a drawing of a man named Alexamenus with his hand up, in a form of worship or adoration. And he's raising his hand toward a naked figure on a cross with the head of an ass. And it's it's funny. It's silly. It's stupid. It's ugly. Because everybody knows that's not what glory looks like. This is not beauty. Look at Caesar Augustus. Look at the Colosseum. The Parthenon, that's beauty, not this. This is dumb. The Jews didn't get it either. It was more than stupid for the Pharisees and the scribes and the temple leaders of Jesus' day. This was blasphemy. To dare to claim that in Jesus, the creator God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob would take on flesh, and not just any flesh, but Galilean flesh, And then die a criminal's death on a Roman cross. This was the most unimaginable, heinous, and evil representation of God you could ever conceive of. And yet, here is Jesus in John 17 asking for his Father's help. Reveal my beauty to the world. Reveal this to the world. And he knew something we didn't. That it would take time that it would look slow and even foolish to the world, but that his beauty would win out. It would transform us. His beauty transforms us. And here's what I mean by that. Glenn Scrivener, he's, he's one of my favorite Christian thinkers and apologists. He's an Australian living in the United Kingdom. He made a video in 2021 where he's standing outside of the National Gallery in London And he's pointing out in this video, he says, listen, art museums, I'm not an artist, this was fresh for me. He said, art museums are more than archives of the past and present. They are modern temples that claim the sacred art, the transcendent art that makes us who we are today. They tell the story of who we are and how we got here. And he pointed back at the National Gallery and he said, one of my friends just went And uh, walked through the the National Gallery and they summarized their experience this way and he quoted her as saying, well, that's Western art for you, a thousand years of crucifixions, and then stripes. It's hard to argue with. At the very core of our sacred art in our culture is the same depiction of death by torture that Jesus prayed his father would give him the strength to reveal 2,000 years ago if you were to take a Roman soldier from the first century and transport him to the National Gallery today, right now, he would be beside himself. That the image that they perfected, that they crafted to shame and punish and terrify the known world into submission to their empire had become the most moving captivating, beautiful summary of who God is that the world has ever known. And make no mistake, that's what it's become. And not just at the National Gallery. The cross is the most ubiquitous image all around the world. It's on necklaces, bracelets, earrings, t-shirts, tattoos, architecture in this room and the world over. How did this happen? How could this be? Well, it's because Jesus prayed, Father, reveal my glory. Show my beauty to the world. It changed Rome. It changed Europe and the West. And the beauty of the cross continues to reverberate to the global south and east. Thousands of years after the practice of crucifixion was banned, the cross of Jesus remains. It still inspires. Still captivates. And more importantly for our purposes today, it still changes us. It still moves us. And it makes us beautiful too. It makes us beautiful. This is where Jesus goes in his prayer. He says this in verse 22. He says, The glory that you, Father, have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Now Jesus is praying here for those disciples. He's around and anyone who would believe through their message, who would have eyes to see who he really is, what truly makes him beautiful above all others, that they too would share in his beauty, That they would compel the world by their beauty just as he has done. That the image of sacrificial love, of dying to self, of wisdom and foolishness, of power and weakness, of beauty and ugliness would be our image. That's who we are now. Because we've been converted, now stay with me here, we've been converted If you are in Christ, not only to the truth of Jesus and the goodness of Jesus, but to the beauty of Jesus too. And I know we aren't all artists here, but I think we all know the power beauty can have. When you see something beautiful, truly beautiful, it stops you in your tracks. You become rooted to the spot and it makes a claim on you. You start to see it everywhere. You start thinking about it. You start talking about it. It sends you out. When you've watched a, a, a film that moves you or heard a song that grabs you, you become its missionary. Have you seen this? Have you heard this? Beauty is not trying to convince you. Beauty arrests you. It stops you. It defeats you. And when Jesus' beauty displayed in the cross does that to you, it moves you to change. It moves you to take on that beauty. When we are enraptured by Jesus' beauty on the cross, everything else Jesus prays for comes into place here in John 17. He prays for our protection from the evil one in verse 15, because The more we see his beauty, the more the lies of this world grow strangely dim. That's how the hymn puts it. Their beauty begins to pale in comparison to his. He prays for our sanctification. He prays for our growth to become more like him in verse 29 because he will not settle for anything less than his beauty in our lives. And he prays for our oneness in verse 22 because despite our real differences, We are united around a universe-shattering image of who God really is and therefore, who we must be to one another. Part of what Jesus is showing here, what John is reminding us of, is that the Christian life, the Christian life Jesus prays for us is not an argument. Our role in the world is not to win an argument with the world. In in fact, if you've ever been in a real argument with someone, even when you're right, you've probably found that you rarely change anyone's mind. The Christian life is not an argument. It's a portrait. It's a picture. It's a sculpture. It's a play. We are supposed to rhyme with Jesus' glory here. We are supposed to look like, sound like, feel like, smell like the fragrance, the sacrifice, the love of Jesus. That's it. And we do that when we behold him. And I know that's a really religious word, behold. We don't say that in everyday English. But it's a good word because it means more than simply to look at something. It means to sit in front of and to study, to be moved by something that we see or experience, to soak in it, to open ourselves to it. This is what we mean, to behold Jesus like that. This is what we are doing in prayer, in Bible reading and study, in community, in singing together, even on a Sunday morning. We are, what we're doing as we are looking and finding every nook and cranny where Jesus is and beholding him there. We are taking him in. We are finding ways again and again to be captivated by his beauty. And the more we do that, the more Jesus' beauty sends us out. It sends us out to be beautiful to the world that Jesus died for. We become ambassadors of his glory in our everyday parts of life, we carry the beauty of the crucified Son of God. We become the kind of people who bring beauty wherever we are. When we reconcile with a family member, when we work and we, make, we don't have to make sure our boss notices, when we serve and do things that no one likes to do, when we give sacrificially instead of getting that next big thing, when we sit with the new kid at lunch because he has no friends. We are painting a picture of the cross in all that we do. And as small as that seems, God sits up, when he sees that he sits up and he says that is the beauty I made the world out of. That is glory revealed, hidden, now revealed. It doesn't seem very practical It doesn't always appear wise. It certainly does not look powerful. It will not always be accepted. But it is always, always, always beautiful. And empires have toppled, have fallen to their knees before it. Fyodor Dostoevsky is one of my favorite authors. And uh, for my money, one of the sharpest Christian thinkers out there. He has a famous story told about him when he was young. He had just married his stenographer, her name was Anna, and they were honeymooning across Europe together. And they stopped in Basel, Switzerland, at an art museum of all places. And Dostoevsky found a painting there called The Dead Christ. I'd show it, but it's so graphic I decided not to. When he saw this painting, he pulled up a chair in the gallery, and he stared at this painting for hours. He actually, at one point, and we know this because Anna uh, wrote about it, she wrote to one of her friends about her honeymoon in a letter, and she was, she was, <laughs> she was mortified by him. He, he, in, in, at one point, he, he pulled the chair closer to the painting, stood on top of it, so that he could get one inch away from this painting. And she said, he looked like such an idiot, I was so worried that we were going to get kicked out or fined. And it's like, yes, they they were truly married. You understand, right? She said, he looks so stupid. I can't think of a better description of Jesus calling on us than that. To become so intimate, so enraptured by him, that we look stupid to anyone who has yet to behold him. Dostoevsky was so moved by this painting, he put it in his book called The Idiot. And one of the characters in the book, uh, The Prince, he says near the end, he says this line, he says, beauty can save the world. But we know, and now proclaim, in all that we do, that beauty did save the world. And it's still changing us. Let's pray. Father, even now, captivate us in Jesus. Whether we have known him for years or we've never met him, I pray for each one here, captivate us by the beauty of Jesus. And in that same moment, make us beautiful people to a watching world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.